0: Welcome to The Restaurant Boiler Room, Season 2, Episode 4. I'm your host, Rick Ormsby, Managing Director at Unbridled Capital. Today in The Boiler Room, we're going to talk about the recent Franchise Investment Conference with Franchise Times. The Restaurant Boiler Room is a one-stop shop for multi-million dollar merger and acquisition activity and financial complexities affecting the franchise restaurant industry. We talk money, deals, valuations, and risk delivered to the front door of franchisees, private equity firms, family offices, large investors, and franchise ores on a monthly basis. Please feel free to find our content at Unbridled Capital's website at www.unbridledcapital.com. Now, let's enter the boiler room. So, uh, Monday, March the 9th through Tuesday, Wednesday, March the 11th was the Franchise Times Franchise Investment Conference in Texas, and I just wanted to talk about just some of the findings there. We'll talk about just some select brands that presented there. We'll talk about Wingstop, CKE, Wendy's. We'll talk about the Dealmaker of the Year Awards, overview from the Inspire Brands team that was there, and then a little bit more close talk of two of their concepts, Arby's and Sonic. And then I'll make some comments on some of the new emerging concepts that presented and gave some pitches on their business and kind of what would be like a little bit of a Shark Tank format. It was an interesting time. So our first uh, keynote speaker was Charlie Morrison, the CEO of Wingstop. You'll know Wingstop as a Wings brand, and they've they've uh, been public since 2015. They were a Rourke portfolio company that was rolled out and sold, and it's really had just kind of a massive success story you know, over the last 20 years or so. And, you know, Charlie did a good job talking about the Wingstop way and talking about their authentic, service-minded, entrepreneurial, and fun atmosphere at Wingstop. And, you know, you really got to feel that the culture and the growth are really are really quite outstanding. I loved uh, their focus on entrepreneurial franchisees, which I thought was fantastic too, but he did a great job in the presentation. His vision and their vision is to be a global top 10 restaurant brand with over 6,000 restaurants in potential, with 3,000 coming from domestic and 3,000 coming from overseas. In the domestic, they talked about 1,231 restaurants in 44 states currently and 154 restaurants in nine countries internationally. So, uh, a couple other comments to note. They wanted uh, they want to digitize every transaction, and they said that today they're at about thirty nine percent delivery and digital. And their goal is to be about a hundred percent. Obviously, some of it through incremental delivery growth, organic digital growth, and above restaurant, and then in in restaurant growth. And so. It's one of the things I'd note as an M&A advisor that I see as a trend in this industry, not just because of what we've seen with the coronavirus, but just the industry itself is moving, I believe, to a model where key pieces of real estate may not be as pertinent and relevant as they've been in the past. Now, people may disagree with me about that, but Wingstop's one of the brands that with a great app, a great delivery platform and takeout ordering, they seem to be just doing great business with a different type of focus. And I love it that they have such a pared back and narrow menu as well. And they've had very little menu change over the life of the brand. And and I think that's a great way to show the consistency to your customers and obviously for your operations as well. A couple of other areas of note that I thought were interesting. Back in 2012, they had domestic system AUVs of 900,000, investment costs of 370,000, and then unlevered cash-on-cash return of about 30%. In 2015, their you know their AUV was a one point one three million investment cost was three hundred and seventy thousand the same, and the uh, cash on cash return was over fifty percent and today. They say that their AUV is about $1.25 million. Their investment cost is 390000 dollars And their unlevered cash on cash returns about 50%. Now, the reason why, you know, obviously the AUV increases, you can you can see them in a publicly traded company. They've had incredible same-store sales growth. But what I note here is that the investment cost over the last nine or 10 years has basically stayed somewhat flat. So the low investment cost kind of really does make a an attractive entry point for somebody who wants to be a small operator and wants to just buy a few, or somebody who might be a larger operator and tagging on Wingstop as a, a second or third brand of their portfolio. Now they shared since 2015 some of their some of their best in class results. And they said, Charlie said that they had over 500 net new locations since then, 13.1% unit development four-year compound annual growth rate. They've operated in 10 countries this globally and then their performance 31.3% stacked same store sales growth since the 15 IPO 16.5% system-wide sales increase over a four-year compound annual growth rate 17.7% adjusted EBITDA 93% 93% average cash conversion ratio and prior to the you know the recent mess up in the markets here 406% total shareholder return since the IPO and 338 million dollars in capital return since the IPO. So by all measures these numbers are fantastically successful. And so, uh, you know, I would just kind of say, from an M and A standpoint, it's my opinion that a lot of the Wingstop franchises are smaller franchisees, you know, and you, you typically don't see a lot of—we don't, at least at Umbrella Capital—see a ton of M and A action in the in the Wingstop world, primarily because I think you have operators who are, you know, are, are trying to build, build new units and grow, and are, are really kind of um, achieving this uh, big, big sales growth and unit growth for the brand. The time will come where there'll be larger franchisees that have businesses that become more attractive for family office and private equity groups, but that's largely not the case now. Uh, whether that's the model or not for Wingstop, I can't say, but I do get lots of phone calls from people who think it is a hot brand and would love to be a part of it if they had a bigger opportunity to do so. So that's Wingstop. Wingstop. There were a number of, I think, as I'm just counting, one, two, three, four, five, six. There's like 12 restaurant franchises and 12 non-restaurant franchises that kind of spoke during the convention under 30-minute time blocks. You know, I obviously listened to most of them but can't talk about all of them here. Instead, I wanted to just pick several select ones. So Jim Sullivan, who works for CKE, which is the franchisor of Carl's Jr. and Hardy's, he spoke and, you know, very familiar with the brand as a child and as a, as a young adult. In Kentucky, here, Hardy's were all and are all around us, and so uh, just a little bit of a glance at CKE—they've been in business for over fifty years. Hardy's started in nineteen sixty, Carl's Jr. in nineteen fifty-six. All this information was given through their presentation at the conference. Thirty-eight hundred and seventy-five restaurants between the two brands, almost four and a half billion dollars in system-wide sales. And uh, 1,350 development commitments, 94% franchise, 350 franchise entities plus at putting the average franchisee, by my math, a little over 11, 11 units per franchisee. They're in 42 countries and 974 international locations and have had 970 new openings since 2015. The Hardy's brand that I know, of course, is known for the made-from-scratch biscuits, and they've got some in- great indulgent products. And you know, their domestic AUVs are about 1.2 million, so 1.35 million roughly, 1.34 million for Carl's Jr., and 1.1 million for Hardee's. And international is just over a million. And again, they're about 6% company owned, and 75% of their business by sales is domestic, with 25% overseas. They uh, talked a little bit about the new design that might be coming out. So, the remodels, uh, you know, the Hardys, both Hardys and Carl's Jr. have been kind of talking about and rumored to have a new remodeling program and a new design and image that's being tested and about to roll out in the franchise system. We were shown a couple of renditions of what that looks like. The hope is that the costs are reasonable. From looking at a couple before and after pictures, I would say that they look like they're, they're uh, substantial but not overly substantial remodels from a cost perspective. So that might be a good thing. And the hope is that the results will be indicative of increased sales and, and, and will be something that will inspire and enthuse the franchise space to remodel in those brands. Those brands have been a little bit uh, languishing over the last couple of years. They, they, you know, they've had their challenges for sure. So we look forward to seeing seeing their uh, reemergence, hopefully, in the next several years. And certainly, there was some optimism from the CKE folks about the future of both brands. We bump next into the Wendy's brand, okay? And Wendy's was there speaking. And we, uh, at Lissa, you know, they just had just some key points there. There's a lot of optimism in Wendy's around the new breakfast, of course, and the hope that that's going to drive sales, and they were going to use those sales from breakfast to promote breakfast as well. That was kind of the hope and some some scuttlebutt around the convention. They were talking about nine years of same store sales growth in the Wendy's brand and an average AUV of a million seven now. Their new image activation, were, they, they said at the year end, 2019, were 58% completed. And they had 182 global openings in 2019, 107 of which were domestic. And, and then if I do the math right here, I guess that means 75 are international. And we saw some of the pictures of their new image activation. And some of the buildings indeed look gorgeous. And they were really excited about both breakfast and development. In the MA world, Wendy's continues to be a very desirable brand, you know, not quite as desirable, obviously, as Taco Bell, but uh, but certainly on the second tier and, and in the top echelon of brands that franchisees would like to acquire, especially family office and private equity groups that are looking for big big portfolio assets to acquire. With the healthy same-store sales growth and kind of a, a pretty stable base and a good management team and a nice value proposition as well and a heavy focus in the Midwest away from a lot of the big minimum wage states. I think Wendy's continues to be a brand that's going to attract the attention of investors and lenders and buyers and, and the whole M&A circuit. Next, we uh, we fell into the little deal maker of the year there, and that was kind of interesting. Franchise Times does that, and they picked twelve deal makers of the year, and we were one of them. Hey, I'm Bridled Capital, so I was excited to be there to accept the award with Derek Ball at our company and Robert Rodriguez, who is a buyer at Tasty Huts, which is owned by a private equity group out of L.A. area that is also a Burger King franchisee, and they bought 117. Pizza Hut restaurants in eight states, primarily in North Carolina, from Bob Geist, and we were the sell side representative. And Bob was one of the original franchisees of the Pizza Hut brand, and it really was a landmark acquisition, you know, of a, just a long time storied franchisee. And so we were there to accept one of the awards, and honored to be there to do that. Let me talk about a little bit of the other awards. You had Ace Hardware bought some, uh, you know, bought bought some units. It looks like. We had a Wendy's group that did a buyout. We had some big news with Chicken Salad Chick. CEO Scott Devaney was there, and they attracted a a PE firm, Brentwood Associates, buying out their old financial partners, and they really had a great story of growth. And so we're kind of excited to see what happens with Chicken Salad Chick, which I believe was started in Auburn, Alabama. And I have a sister-in-law there who who I think knows the founder. So it's a pretty cool story about how quickly they've grown. You had uh, a group that um, a Taco Bell group, franchisee group that, that came into the system Vantage Edge Partners that invested in a long long known Taco Bell and KFC franchise this last year that won one of the awards. You had a fitness deal that made it. You had a modern acupuncture kind of deal that uh, attracted some equity in the marketplace. Another award was premium service brands acquired Kitchenwise, made right, and Renew crew. Self-esteem brands picked up Anytime Fitness and Waxing the City. Sun Holdings, led by Guillermo Perales, bought a bunch of locations and rights to the uh, McAllister's Deli brand. Then you had WKS Restaurant Group, which acquired a you know almost a hundred Denny's. So all in all, it's kind of indicative of what I would say across the entire franchise industry, not just restaurants, but across the entire industry. You're, you saw you know kind of a proliferation of deals happening in the middle market space with franchisees across whether it was restaurants or whether it was you heard uh, gym you know kind of fitness companies. You heard other types of health and wellness companies as well, and and so I think this is, a, this is a continued push into M&A across all franchises. Someone told me that 30 percent – I don't know that these numbers are right – but that 30 percent of franchising is now outside of restaurants in the United States. And, of course, it's growing at a much higher clip than restaurants are. So something to continue to notice as this convention and others uh, show the, the strength of the, of the uh, non-restaurant franchises as something for the future. We talked a little bit about Inspired, and so the Inspired team, Burt Lane and Joe Sieve, came and they talked about the five concepts that Inspire has, Arby's, Buffalo Wild Wings, Sonic, Jimmy John's, and Rusty Taco. And Just to give you a little bit of background, Arby's has $4 billion in sales system-wide, 3,500 units, 66% franchise-owned. Buffalo Wild Wings, $3.8 billion in system sales, 1,280 units and 50% franchise owned. This is from their documentation in the presentation. Sonic has $4.7 billion, which interestingly makes them the largest of all of their brands with 3,526 units, 94% franchise owned. Jimmy John's has $2.1 billion in system-wide sales with 2,787 units and 98% franchise owned. And then Rusty Taco has $29 million in system-wide sales with 33 Restaurants and 73% franchise owned. And they talked a little bit about the Inspire operating model and platform, which I thought was interesting. And how, and you know, Joe very clearly said that hey, they're you know, opportunistic and potentially looking at new brands to acquire as well, which is no surprise to anyone listening to this who knows about their company, a portfolio company, I guess, of Rourke Brands. But They talked about scalable shared services as part of their operating model. So they obviously acquire a restaurant concept, and then they fold in the finance, corporate HR, legal, construction, enterprise IT, communications, all these facility management, all these different pieces. They talked about operational brand functions, and then they talked about strategic platforms, and strategic brand functions and clearly several discussions were made about the purchasing power of both food and vendors when you have a bigger platform but very much the operating platform seems to be to centralize and congregate some of the common functions and then to drive the investment in the particular brands themselves individually and so it's quite impressive and and I think anyone looking at the situation is is thinking that Inspire's got some um, major momentum in the industry as maybe one of the four or five major consolidating groups, uh, franchisors across the U.S. in the restaurant space. Then we went into a little discussion on Arby's with their $4 billion in system-wide sales, 3,500 restaurants, 291 franchisees, 1.18 million system AUVs, and nine years of same-store sales increases. Which I thought was impressive. And kind of a little bit about their model being a little more fast casual, but they call it fast crafted, which is a mix between quick service and fast casual. So the Arby's brand obviously has has done really, really well over the last few years. Its AUVs have come up, you know, substantially. Their story's not quite like I was talking Wingstop earlier, but nonetheless, I mean it's 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 still very much a very steady rise. As the brand has really been under great leadership and done just a great job. So with 3,500 units and fairly heavily amount of corporate ownership for that brand too, with the franchisees owning a majority but not a substantial majority of those of those restaurants, you know I'd say you would expect continued acceleration of development in that brand, and hopefully they can keep their momentum alive too. A lot of people call me asking for Arby's acquisitions. There aren't too many out there. And uh, there aren't too many platform-like acquisitions either of decent scale. Once you take out a couple of the really big franchisees who've tra- transacted recently, and then you, and then of course you take out the corporate-owned stores. So that remains a brand that I think people are keeping their eyes on for for not only consolidation but for investment and growth for the future. And then we had a, just a couple more on this, uh, on this podcast. One is Sonic. Sonic, $4.7 million in system sales. You know, the Inspire folks were talking to us about it. So, uh, started in, in Shawnee, Oklahoma. 65 years of brand heritage, 316 franchisees. 56% of sales come from beverages, snacks, and frozen treats. And uh, they've got a very diverse menu. Obviously, they say the most diverse menu in QSR which is a positive and maybe a negative for operations. Thirty five hundred and twenty six restaurants. They have a really nice, you know, app and digital platform, I think, that's really gonna be a key to their growth. And they have a nice menu board potential with the new Pops POS upgrades that they've done in all of the car hops and the locations that have them. He, they showed us a little rendition and rendering of maybe a new Sonic image and, and, and remodel for the future. I think it was a prototype type design that, that the folks even said is brand new off the press and you know, but uh, it, it looks beautiful. And I just think in general, there seems to be quite a bit of optimism about the Sonic brand. This is the newest brand to the Inspire folks, and so we'll see how that folds into their portfolio. But I've known the Sonic brand for a long time and know many of the franchisees. And, and I just think it's a, it's a brand that has been um, that has done a great job regionally. They're very distinct and unique in what they do their real estate model has always been a little bit you know a little bit tricky because it's kind of single purpose real estate and for that reason you you see them operating a lot in small towns and you know you haven't seen a lot of, of financial players and strategic buyers come into the business in large quantity a lot of original and second generation founders uh, you know in the franchise uh, arena, at least in these companies, and uh, that that system, in my esteemed opinion, is one that you know has a lot of upside, both for the brand itself and the sales and the trajectory, but also for uh, new franchisees coming in and maybe consolidating and operating a bigger portfolio over time, uh, especially as the brand tries to continue to figure out to build and develop outside of its core area. Last thing I would, I guess, I would say. Just a little quick walk down, down some of the franchise businesses that were there that are brand new or were smaller and, and just kind of pitching their story. And I found that quite exciting, right? So we had Venture X that came out and they were a kind of a shared space platform uh, for office space and workspace. He had Modern Market Eatery, Rise Southern Biscuits, and Righteous Chicken, Orange Leaf Frozen Yogurt. Image Studio 360, which was like a shared it was kind of a much of a real estate play where you uh, you have uh, you know hairdressers and folks who rent space from from the franchisee who, who buys real estate and, and then kind of creates the spaces and the stalls for rent and use. You had a barbecue concept and a kebab concept, a tire express concept. Later on we had a you know a craft creamery concept, ever Bowl, trampoline park, Doghouse Press Waffle Company, which I thought was really kind of a a neat, smaller kind of concept with a really fiery founder, who, and and then we had a dog franchise there as well. And they each had five minutes to kind of make their pitch for their business case. And I thought it was a great, great way to kind of learn a little bit more about these new concepts that are coming up in franchising, ones that maybe you are trying to do it with a little less capital investment, maybe a little nimbler, obviously. And uh, maybe something that's trying to not be the next McDonald's, if you understand what I mean, something that's trying to do a spin that's a little bit different, maybe appeals to a different demographic, maybe is a little younger and hipper and is not afraid to be a food truck-ish-like business that has great unit economics, inspires maybe smaller operators to get involved, but also maybe has a little better lifestyle to it than the big-scale, large franchise organizations out there. And I think for those of you who follow this, these small private companies do pretty well. So typically a founder will will have one unit and then they'll get a second or a third or fourth unit maybe in place. And in this market, now we're at the end of the upcycle here, obviously, but in this market, investors and buyers will come in with capital and pay very big multiples of EBITDA for really smaller ten sub 10 unit franchise or concepts if they can get a majority ownership and uh, you know if the results have been good. So I will tell you, if you listen to this or just eat at some of these new concepts across the country, I tell the founders all the time, I say, guys and gals, what you want to do is you have to have 100% success in your first six or seven or eight units. You don't want to have two losers and five winners in your stores whatever concept it is because it doesn't show well obviously if if you have failures in your first few it puts puzzling looks on the faces of investors. so Be very cautious. If you've got a great concept and you've got one or two units that have done really well, don't jump too quickly to a new market or to a questionable piece of real estate or a questionable investment. Be conservative and go slowly at first and make sure those first six to seven units are successful. Don't franchise too soon. In many cases, you might not choose to franchise at all in the first couple of years of starting your new concept. and If you do it, whether company development or through franchising, and you do it early in the life cycle of the brand, make sure not to start your first your first unit in O, let's say the East Coast and then your second your second market out on the west coast because you're going to lose, you know you, what you're trying to build is a little bit of marketing and a little bit of brand awareness and a little bit of synergies from an operational and training standpoint. And I've seen so many small franchisors do the opposite, which they build up a, a couple of markets that that have really been successful. And then they have a buddy who lives in Phoenix, 2,000 years, you know, miles away, and, and they sell him some franchises or a joint venture. And then it goes out there, and it's like starting afresh once again, and it just doesn't do as well. And then your storyline is not a good storyline for an investment group. But nonetheless, these small franchisors have a lot of energy, have a lot of promise. A lot of them, interestingly, are pitching their businesses as a way to be a second or third franchise platform to a financial sponsor's portfolio. And that's smart because a lot of these financial sponsors, private equity and family office groups, they want two or three legs of the school. And even increasingly, as I'm watching these days, you keep hearing these guys talking about non-restaurant, non-restaurant. So, so I think that's wise. If you have one of those concepts, the way you have to appeal to a large family office back group is uh, they don't they don't necessarily like to put money in the slow, snail's pace development mode. They want to acquire EBITDA, right, in many cases. So the model of buying a five or six unit concept and then employing tons of capital against it for a bunch of slow unit development is somewhat is somewhat of a distracting model for a large group. So if you're in that situation, you have to be the type of brand, I think, that makes it easy for a 100-unit Pizza Hut franchisee in Florida to be able to put your brand easily from an operational standpoint, from a real estate standpoint, from a diversification standpoint, really right within the same trade areas that that franchisee operates. And that is the way that you overcome this notion of, of having to buy an idea that may have 10 units nationwide and then having to sink money into it you know, for a slow but steady return. You have to appeal to their trade area and be complimentary to what they're doing on Main and Maine and XYZ City, USA. So I hope you enjoyed that. It It was a great convention. And thank you so much for listening today. In closing, thanks so much for entering the Boiler Room today. You can find our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify. If you like these podcasts, please listen, rate, and review. I also encourage you to visit our website at www.unbridledcapital.com for the best franchise M&A and financial resources in the industry. Our website includes podcasts, videos, white papers, webinars, and a list of our M&A transactions. Please note that neither Rick Ormsby nor Unbridled Capital give legal, financial, or tax advice. These podcasts represent opinions that may be prepared and have been prepared for informational purposes only. We expressly disclaim any and all liabilities that may be based on such information, errors therein, or omissions therefrom.